Making love. It's in the Bible. We are celebrating one more time uh, this Sunday covenant lovemaking that is preached to us by the Old Testament book, the biblical book, A Song of Songs. And many people, when they uh, encounter the erotic in the Bible, they're surprised. They're surprised that the Bible has eroticism in it. This is actually not the only place where you have eroticism in the Bible. If you're reading through the prophet Ezekiel, uh, there's a very uncomfortable place uh, in Ezekiel 16, if you're ever reading. It's, it's, it's actually hard to read because it's so graphic in a, in a negative way. Uh, but also you could take a place like Hosea 2, beautiful, beautiful passage of what we could call righteous seduction by a husband of a wife in Hosea 2. And yet we have, we have trouble with it. There's a great celebration going on in this book, the Song of Songs. And the Bible, we see, uses the erotic to show us that covenant lovemaking is God's idea. We tend to kind of put it off to the side and say it's not really part of the life that we have that has to do with God. Uh, but God has it in there in the Bible to show us a fuller, really a fuller eroticism than what we get in the world. And that is actually part of his creation, part of his plan uh, for life. And I, I don't know anybody really who gets to these parts in the Bible and just is easy with them. Um, you know, it's not just kids, it's not just single folks. You know, everybody, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't feel somewhat embarrassed at times reading the Song of Songs and part of the Song of Songs. Uh, it's all of us. I think that says more about us, actually. <laughs> than the book. Um, and it's kind of uh, part and parcel of how the church has had difficulty entering into this book, this biblical book that's uh, there in the middle of the Bible. The church has had a, a block there, historically speaking. Um, it hasn't been able to enter in and use the Song of Songs. Now, why is that? Uh, you know, it's not a complete wash there, certainly, the book has been preached and written about by different Jewish figures, different Christian figures throughout history. Um, people have uh, responded, I think, to the passion on the pages of the song. It's a very passionate book, and passionate people, excuse me, passionate people have taken the passion of the book and use it to express their passion for God. Uh, people like Bernard of Clairvaux and, and the Christian mystics like Catherine of Siena would be one one I think of associated with this book. Just real passion. Passionate people want to express their passion. Uh, other people have tried to just make it a, a metaphor for Christ in the church. And that's really the struggle that the church has had with the book. It's like a difficulty entering in because, you know, they read this book and, and they think, well, you know, it's obviously about marriage, right? And when I turn to the New Testament, a place like Ephesians 5, I learn that marriage is a metaphor for Christ in the church. So if this book is about marriage and marriage is about Christ in the church, then this must be about Christ in the church. And yet there's a problem with that as we've looked at over these weeks. There's a big problem with that because this is the Song of Solomon. This is the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. And Solomon was anything but a type of Christ in his life. We know that Solomon just was not 
heroic in this area. There are ways in which Solomon is quite heroic. There are ways in which Solomon is, uh, you know, fundamental to the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. You read the first few chapters of Kings, the book of Kings, and you see Solomon was heroic. He was, he was so wise. He's just, as I said, instrumental in the coming of the kingdom, but not in this, not in marriage. He did not show us the way of God. He did not show us and point us uh, to Christ in any way. Not in this. So people don't know what to do with that. People like Origen try to make it a, a, about Christ and the church and metaphor, but um, it's, it's one of the struggles that we have. And here's the problem with the church. I think an inadequate, what I would call an anthropology, an inadequate by that I mean an understanding of ourselves. So they miss really the key uh, that can help us enter into the book. And that is this. <clears throat> there really is a type of Christ in the book. But it's not Solomon. It's the woman. It is the Shulamite bride whose voice we are hearing in the pages of this book. She is showing us Christ. She is pointing to Christ. She is actually a type of Christ. Now, you say, how does that work? How does a woman be the type of Christ? We know that when God became a person in the incarnation, the person we know as Jesus Christ, he became a man. He took on the body of a man and became a man, right? So how is it that we can understand a woman as a woman being a type of Christ? And this, friends, requires us shifting our, our stance a little bit, it's taking a different stance in the way that we look at God. Because gender, it turns out, according to the Bible, is about relationship. And in regard to relationship we see different things in the second person of the Trinity. You know, the second person of the Trinity, whom we know as Jesus Christ, actually is neither masculine nor feminine. He's not a man or a woman. He's God, right? But it's appropriate at times to understand the metaphor of masculinity and femininity of Christ in different ways. So in relationship to us, Christ is masculine, right? Because he is our bridegroom, right? We are, as the body of Christ, we're his bride, right? So Christ is, like a ma is masculine to us in that way. But in, re in relation to God the first, in relation to the other member of the Trinity, it's appropriate to think in terms of femininity in Christ. Femininity is actually appropriate there. And so Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he says, you know, it's like this, you know, God is the head of Christ, just like, you know, the husband is the head of a wife. The husband is the head of the wife. God, the first, is the promiser, is the head of Christ. He makes that comparison there for us. So this is important for us as women. We need to see, well, I'm not a woman, but as women, we need to see as women, we are also like Christ. And that as Christ acts, he shows us also as women, God. Please stand if you're, if you're able to do that comfortably. We're going to read from the Song of Songs. And I'm going to again read selections. Uh, I'm going to start in chapter 2. And I'm going to try to show you where we are. I'll, I'll mention the verses. 
And we're just going to get back into the imagery of the song, the beautiful poetry of the song, to, to try to understand what the author is, is teaching us through this about <clears throat> covenant lovemaking. So join me now as I read from that book which we are made so uncomfortable by. Chapter 2, verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Chapter 5, verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. In chapter 7, verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your pools, your eyes are, are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. And chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. And one more time, we will look at this. You know, I love reading that last verse. Because as, as I've been trying to bring out and argue, this is really the key to understanding the book. And the, and the author, you know, this is the only time in the whole Song of Songs where the name of God comes up. And, uh, you know, difficulties of interpretation there, but I've been saying that, you know, it's that one place that the author needs to bring it up. And I think there is a strategy that the writer has in refraining from using the name of God throughout this whole book until that one point at the end where, where the author opens up to us the meaning of all that the Shulamite bride has been talking about. Because, you know, what the author is doing is saying, here's this thing in our lives, we know it's there, physical lovemaking, and it's, it, we, ha we have the temptation to think, as we do, that this has nothing to do with God, that this is common, that this is unholy, that we feel kind of guilty about doing it, that when we're doing it, if we do it, that God is diverting his eyes from it. Even married couples can have this feeling. And so she's bringing this out, all these wonderful things about it, celebrating it, and then at the very end, she drops the punchline, which is 
this thing that you think is common, that you think is not a part of what God is doing in your life, is in fact a fire. And that fire is set with the very flame of the Lord. What she's saying, she's telling us that there's something here that's talking to us about God, that lovemaking in the song is patterned after the inimitable life of God. So what I want to do today is bring out a principle that actually is a Trinitarian principle, something that we've come to understand from the scriptures, that theologians have come to understand about the Trinity to help us see that, in fact, it is what powers lovemaking, covenant lovemaking. Just one of them. There's actually a number of kind of erotic principles, what I would say righteous eroticism in the book. Here's one of them. The truth about the Trinity is, the, is this, that the, the way that they love each other is the way that they are distinguished. How one is different from the other. And as I've said, as we've made the point here, the great promiser, the great first member of the Trinity is distinguished only by being the unbegotten one. They all share the same characteristics of God. They're all God. And yet the first one is distinguished in relation to the others because he is the unbegotten one. The great beloved one whom we know is Jesus Christ, the great second, is distinguished by being of the first and together with the first being the one from which the third proceeds. But only that. So, you know, you've heard of sola scriptura, some of you, sola fide. Well, this is what we could call the sola cognatione in Latin, which would be only by relationship. Only by relation to one another are they distinguished. And here's the thing. It brings them great pleasure, these distinctions. It brings them great pleasure to know and to be identified in this way to one another. So it brings great pleasure to the Christ that the promiser, the great first one, is unbegotten. One time, uh, Jesus was talking with his disciples, and, and they were at supper. They were at the Last Supper. This is in uh, John chapter 14. And, and Jesus, in, in a rare moment of indulgence, rare moment of indulgence, Jesus says to his apostles, you know, if you really loved me, you would be happy for me because I'm about to go back to the one who is unbegotten the Father, the unbegotten one, and he is just so great. And you can see Jesus taking pleasure in this one, in the unbegottenness of the Father, of the unbegotten one. It brings great pleasure to the promiser, the first, that Christ is of him. It brings him great pleasure. One time he spoke through, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42, and he says, you know, all the things that Christ does, all the ways that Christ serves me and proclaims our justice and is, and is being sent, in those things, my soul is so well pleased, he says. So you see these pleasures in one another, in their distinctions, in the Trinity. And here's the thing. Those pleasures are splayed out 
in his image, us, in the form of gender, and intensely so in covenant lovemaking. So when we turn to the book and we read the things that we read this morning, we see this. So look in chapter 5, right, verse 10. What did we read? What is it that the bride is getting so excited about in her bridegroom? What is the thing that really is arousing to her? What is she excited about? Chapter 5, verse 10, what does she say? My beloved is chief among 10,000. That's the King James Version. My beloved is distinguished among the 10,000. She's excited by his distinguishing and in distinguishing him, right? And this goes on throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 2, we started with, right? As a lily among brambles, so is my beloved woman distinguished. As an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved bridegroom distinguished, right? What's she doing? She's, she's glorying in the distinguishing of him. And, you know, people argue about this, say, that, well, this is not authentic. It can't be authentic because there aren't apple trees in Israel. And it's true. There aren't really apple trees in Israel. But there is, there's actually slight literary evidence for apple trees appearing in Israel. Slight literary evidence. So, so they were there in ancient times, but not many of them. They're rare. And that's the point. That's what she's saying. Among the trees of the wood, you find an apple tree in Israel. Oh, my gosh. This is, this is something that excites her, this distinguishing. And so it goes on through their unique personal traits and then even more deeply in their gender difference, which we talked about last time. How, how one is different from the spouse, that is this principle, this erotic principle of covenant lovemaking. So let me put it this way, okay? That which is true of the Trinity's delight is erotic for us because we are metaphors of God. I know that sounds strange, but it's the truth. That which is true of the Trinity's delight is for us erotic because we're metaphors of God. Now, friends, there are many ways, many wrong ways to the erotic. There are many wrong pathways to excitement. We know those. But you see, what the song is giving us is wholesome, righteous paths to excitement with our spouse, with one another. And the thing is, we find that these are Trinitarian truths. So the erotic is there. Not as some common thing, not as some unholy thing. The erotic is there to help us know God. Okay, that's the principle. That's it. Now, let me help us apply that to our lives. If you're married, what does that mean to you? <clears throat> that means, folks, that you develop excitement by focusing on the distinguishing traits of your spouse in their personality, in their body, in their gender, difference from you. You glory in your spouse's distinctions. That is covenant lovemaking. Now, for example, I happen to have married a, a beautiful woman. 
Okay, it's just the way it turned out. Don't know why, but she's, she's, just a, she's just a real beauty. In fact, if you haven't seen my wife, like if you're new here and you haven't seen my wife, or you're watching on live stream and you haven't seen my wife, um, I just, I feel sorry for you, okay? <laughs> Your life could have been much better. And, you know, one of the things that I've noted for a long time about my wife is her nose. My wife has a very prominent nose. Uh, it's, it's a distinguishing characteristic. It's right out there. It's not like these women, you know, have small noses. Just, she has a real nose, okay? Like some of you are reading in Psalm, Psalms chapter 7, you're reading along like we read this morning, and say, oh, her nose is like the Tower of Damascus, uh, you know, looking, looking towards, or actually the Tower of Lebanon, looking toward Damascus, which is really about security and safety, you know, the Tower of, of Lebanon. But you read that and you say, well, this doesn't do anything for me. Let me tell you, that verse was written for my wife. It's, the way, it's one of the ways she is chief among 10,000. And what we find, the more we get to know our spouse, is that God has given great gifts to us, great gifts to us. Not every gift, but great gifts to us in our spouse. And it is in glory in those gifts that we make covenant love. So, you know, there are at least 12 different Hebrew words for beauty in the Old Testament. I know because I went through these at one point with my sweetheart. 12 different Hebrew words that you could translate beauty. Each of them are a little bit different. You know, it's like how the, they say, oh, the Eskimos have these, all these different words for snow, right? Well, Hebrew has 12, at least 12 different words for beauty, each meaning a little bit something different. Yet each one you could look at and say, but that, translate that beauty. In fact, you know, the one often used in the Song of Songs, the word that you often find for beauty in the Song of Songs in its feminine form, is, is indistinguishable from the word for home or dwelling or pasture. So it's kind of a homey beauty that's emphasized in the Song of Songs. But there are all these, it, it, one of the things it teaches us is that beauty is sundry, right? It comes in actually many different packages. And I wish they all could be California girls, right? Sometimes popular music actually hits on this. I wish they could all be California girls. I've got to get back, back to the USSR. Right? Sometimes you see it that, that actually beauty is multifaceted. And what you're doing in your covenant lovemaking is you're distinguishing these things in your spouse. You realize that this is the opposite way of the world. The opposite way of the world is to cultivate in us covetousness to focus on the things that we don't have, right? That's the point of a lot of advertising. Like some of you actually work in advertising. You know this, right? The point of advertising, much advertising, is to get the, get the consumer to focus on what they don't have. So they go out and buy your, project, your, your product, right? So they can have it all. It's the point of advertising. Okay, covenant lovemaking does the opposite. It is there to cultivate gratitude in us for the great gifts that God gives to us in our spouse. Not every gift, but the great gifts that are there. And, the, and, and this happens only in this vision of marriage that is put forth by the Shulamite bride. This vision that we don't see in Solomon, but we see her holding forth. That is of marriage as 
this exclusively devoted, long as life, reciprocally possessive, intergendered, becoming of one flesh. This principle grows in a marriage. So I'll tell you where you don't get it. You don't get this eroticism with casual encounters. You don't even get it with shacking up together. Like if you say, I'm going to live with this person for a few months, you know, live with this person even a few years. You don't, you don't get this because you don't come to know the, dis- the real true distinctions of a person. You only get it in the kind of marriage that the Shulamite bride is preaching to us. You also don't get it, it's, it's not as, it doesn't come out in a monogendered relationship as it does in an intergendered relationship because the difference isn't there. It's one of the reasons we, we can't endure same-sex marriage here at Ironworks Church. But this is the way it goes. And you know what happens in a marriage that goes on, those of you who have been married for more like decades, and if things are working the way they should, the way, way, if it works the way it should, what this does is that it continues to power the lovemaking in the marriage. So even though as we age, and couples who are getting older and they're aging, in some ways are not as attractive to one another, in some ways, in other ways, you're starting to see the person as they really are. You're able to distinguish that person really in the ways um, that bring excitement. And, and in couples that, where this is happening, you're looking at your spouse and you're seeing things that others can't see. And you're saying the same thing, that God has given me great gifts in this person. Not every gift, but great gifts in this person. And so the ways in which this person is being sanctified become, become sources of excitement for you. It's what goes on in covenant lovemaking. And as you, you get really old, I mean, let's just follow this through. For elderly couples, you know, elderly couples, it's actually, there's still covenant lovemaking. You're not doing the same things that you did before. There's not the same kind of intercourse. But there is covenant lovemaking because there still is touch with appreciation. And that's really what covenant lovemaking is. It's touch with appreciation. And that goes on and on as you, as you are, see the person distinguished more and more. It only happens over a long period of time. This is what God wants for us. This is the, erot- the righteous eroticism that he wants for us. And this is how the Trinitarian principle of distinction powers a marriage. Okay, so now I want to also be sure I address the single people here today. If you're not married, okay, I usually turn over to this row here, but this doesn't look like young single people right now. Why are you sitting there? You know, you're in the young (laughs) single person's... (laughs) Okay. No, I'm kidding. You can actually sit wherever you want here at Ironworks. You know, our, our pastor here cares very much about not being legalistic. So you can actually sit wherever you want. But this makes it harder now for me to pick out the young single people. But no. So if you're here and you're single, what does this mean for you? Thank you. You can raise your hand. <laughs> okay, I know you. 
Um, what does this mean for you if you're single? You're like, why am I uh, learning about this? Well, this is very actually important for you because this is why you're waiting. You're looking at this and you're saying, you know, I want what this gift is for. This gift is to help me know God. If I take this, if I take this gift out of the context in which he's given me to know him, then I won't know him through this gift. This is why you set it apart. This is why you set, the, set apart the marriage bed. You make it holy. Because you recognize the essence of God is in this gift. You don't want to use it in a way that, that you don't know God. It doesn't bring you to know God. And it's good to understand this going in. Some of you, I know, hope, hope you will someday be married. And you need to know going in. Right now, you need to be finding the person with the best uh, qualities you can. Because you're in the realm of choice. You should be looking for the person and find the best qualities that you can. But, but you need to know, after you get into a marriage, you'll find that you might have thought your, your spouse had it all, but your spouse doesn't have it all. It's good to know coming in, this is what is actually lovemaking is about. It's about distinguishing those gifts, good gifts, that you find increasingly in your spouse. So... Let's say that you have same-sex attraction, that you find same-sex attraction in yourself. How does this help you? This helps you, friends, to know that God has other ways for you. Beauty is multifaceted, and covenant lovemaking is so rich and full. It's not like the world's way. Covenant lovemaking is so rich and full that you find other ways to be aroused than what you think is the way that you have to be aroused. That's the way it works. And what is so tragic about the messaging, the current cultural messaging, if you buy into it, what is the culture telling us? Culture is saying to us right now, if you find these desires in yourself, you have to bang your fist and say, this is who I am. I need to identify myself by these desires. If you do that, you miss out. Because if you do that, you, know, you don't find these other ways. You don't find them. Now, I know that sounds arrogant for me to say this because I'm saying <laughs> basically the opposite of what you're hearing from every engine of the culture, that what you need to do is identify yourself by these desires. I'm saying, no, you do that, you actually miss out. You might say, well, that's pretty arrogant. Where do you get off saying that? How do you know that? Well, there actually is a reason I know that. It's because in 2009... I founded a ministry in Greenwich Village, New York City. It's called Higher Ground. And we specifically did it because we had people who were finding a conflict in themselves between pursuing their same-sex attraction and pursuing Christ. And it was a real problem for these folks. They needed help. Then they needed something more than just a pat answer from the culture, just be gay. They needed help addressing these things. And so we have been helping them. We've been helping them for over a decade. And by the way, you know, uh, Laura mentioned our installation service. We're going to be bringing the head of that ministry here to introduce him to you in a few weeks as a resource for you. But I'll tell you what we've learned over this past decade. This is what we've learned. God does not command arbitrarily. God does not tell us things to do things in an arbitrary way. If we want to go this way and God says, no, I want you to go that way, 
it's because that way is better for us. In the end, although it's hard for, hard for us to see sometimes, it's because that way is more fulfilling for us. It actually does something to us that we did not expect. That's what we found with these guys, these men and women that we've addressed. All biblical morality is good for me. It's better for me. And there are other ways for you, but you have to believe him to find them. Okay. All right, so that's the ideal. You know, I wanted to bring the, I wanted to hold this up for us. Um, I wanted to hold forth that ideal because I wanted you to strive. I want us all to strive for the fullness of covenant lovemaking that we find in the Song of Songs. But some of you, as I've been speaking, you've been thinking about your life, you've been listening to what I'm saying, you've been watching this you know, castle in the sky, and you've been sinking lower and lower, if not in your seat, in your heart, because you're saying, this is not going on in my bedroom. You know, I know what's going on here with, with me, and I, uh, this is not my, being my experience. I fall so short. Why would God want to bless me? Yes, we fail at this. We fall so short. In fact, it's a wonder that God gives us the gift of pleasure and lovemaking that he does when we, when we mess it up so much. We do. But he does, and he does because somebody did it right. The Shulamite bride held to the ideal. That's why she can preach to us. When the world around her was not, when her own lover did not, the Shulamite bride, whose love was as strong as death, distinguished her husband as her head. And in that, she showed us Christ. Oh, yes, she is a type of Christ. She showed us Jesus Christ because she showed us the one, the beloved one, who truly did make love to the promiser by so distinguishing him to us, showing God to be the chief among 10,000, so unique to us that we would love him and because of that, because of that lovemaking of Christ, and that's why he did what he did, we are brought into that love. The Father is pleased with us, even though we fall so short as lovers, because Christ has done it right already. So it is okay. It really is okay. And he smiles upon you in your efforts. And he wants you to have rightful pleasure because Christ has loved the promiser rightfully. So what we're going to do now is come to the communion table and because this is what brings us into that distinguishing love. It is at the communion table that because of what Christ has done, we are brought into that perfect lovemaking. We're brought into the, the very love of God among themselves. So let us now enter into the love that God has made for us. Please stand with me.